Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. You're listening to Radio Rounds, a talk show created and hosted by medical students and physicians in training, where today's stories are told by tomorrow's doctors. Today on Radio Rounds, we ask questions about cancer care in low-resource settings with Dr. Ami Pat, Assistant Professor of Medicine and Genetics and the Director of Global Oncology for the Center of Innovation and Global Health at Stanford University. She's also the co-president and co-founder of Global Oncology, a national nonprofit organization who aims to solve cancer care challenges in low- and middle-income countries. Ami, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Ami, your career has spanned everything from basic sciences to global health advocacy. Can you tell our listeners how you became interested in looking at this very specific problem of cancer care in low-resource settings? I've always been interested in how we can take science and advocacy and improve health outcomes. But if you want to have broader impact in the arena of health, I think I realized early on that you needed to try to do something either at the public health level or at the scientific research level. Given that I had always been interested in cancer disparities and cancer as both a topic of biological study and patient care, I decided to investigate the burden of cancer overseas. When considering global health, many do not think of cancer as a priority disease. However, as Ami explains, we may have reached a transition point in the way we care for patients in low-income settings. So traditionally, global health, before it was called global health, uh, a long time ago, it was called tropical medicine and hygiene. Um, so tropical medicine was really focused on diseases that affected the majority of the world's population that was living in, as the word would imply, tropical regions. These were infectious diseases, diseases related to exposures. It's really thanks to pioneering individuals who made great impact in improving outcomes related to infectious diseases, public health, and issues such as malnutrition that patients or individuals are living longer. As they live longer, they start to be exposed to disorders that typically occur individuals in individuals in higher income settings. While cancer is often thought of as a disease of affluent countries, 70% of cancer deaths occur in low and middle income countries. One of the things that makes cancer so difficult to treat is that it doesn't just end with the initial diagnoses. Getting a good diagnosis is simply not enough. And putting in screening pro- programs without di- you know, workup and treatment programs is futile. I think this is one of the other things that we need to consider when we try to address cancer is we really need to build systems that can care for patients from the beginning of their illness through their course of therapy. Now, while this is a very, very difficult thing to do, uh, one reason to consider doing it is that typically a system, a healthcare system that can take care of cancer can take care of almost any disease. In our next segment with Ami, we'll ask how diseases from the past have led us to better approaches for treating cancer in low-resource settings. We'll also explore areas in which Ami's team, Global Oncology, is looking to change the course of cancer treatment worldwide. Welcome back to Radio Rounds. In our previous segment, Dr. Pat discussed how cancer is an important and growing epidemic in low-resource countries. In our next segment, she'll explain how lessons from the past and creative solutions can improve cancer care worldwide. 
Finally, we'll close our series with some inspiring thoughts on making medicine a gateway to positive change. Ami, you spoke earlier about the work that pioneers in global health have done in diseases like tuberculosis and HIV. Can you explain some of the lessons that we've learned from those diseases and how we can apply those to cancer treatment? Sure. So I think the the place outside of cancer that we've done the best job of improving access to drugs has, of course, been HIV. I think the management of HIV AIDS has been a dramatic worldwide success story. Uh, We've made drugs available to every country, regardless of its income status. We've built infrastructure to monitor patients, to measure things like CD4 counts, which is not an, uh, an insignificant task. And we've really turned this disease around. So what made the difference for HIV? Why did the world galvanize around this issue? Um, I think one of the things that catalyzed this, you know, aggressive move to eradicate HIV was fear. I mean, I think this is a communicable disease. I think there was certainly fear that the disease would spread rampantly. I think the second piece is that this disease affected not only poor individuals, but wealthy individuals as well. And so there was a, a desire to address the, the economic needs of wealthier individuals. I think probably most importantly, there was a huge advocacy movement. Um, so you had these groups that were, you know, standing up for, for AIDS rights and trying to make aggressive impact. And I think in the, in the history of modern medicine, we have never seen such a public, um, galvanizing around a medical topic as we did in the setting of HIV and AIDS. We saw protests. We saw, um, folks demanding better healthcare and better healthcare related to HIV and AIDS across the world. Um, I think there were countries and, and pharmaceutical companies that were, we're not honestly all that interested in addressing this issue, uh, but there was so much worldwide pressure created by these advocacy groups that it was really just not an option to not treat these diseases. And so I think, think to some extent what they did really well was they made a lot of noise. It's interesting. It seems that with HIV, in essence, you had the perfect storm of fear and advocacy and the right people concerned about this issue. One other area of cancer that we don't necessarily talk about a lot, but is very important, is when we know the patients are going to succumb to their disease and the availability of palliative care. What's the role of palliative care in low-resource settings, and what is the availability of quality palliative care? Approach to palliative care for cancer patients and other patients with you know chronic diseases that are in the terminal phases varies widely based on country. Um, there are varying cultural norms in terms of what is acceptable regarding pain at end of life. Um, there's a lot of cultural influence on where people die and, you know, whether they die at home or in the hospital or elsewhere. What I can tell you is that the access to even palliative medications such as morphine or morphine equivalents is very, very poor outside of high-income countries. Now, the reasoning behind this is probably complex and relates to the overall um, management of narcotics, which is by the International Narcotics Control Board. Um, It's a non-governmental kind of governing body that um, manages 
how much narcotics each country gets every year. Um, typically, there's kind of a perpetuation of low use. So if your country didn't use a lot of opiates one year, when you're asked to estimate how much you'll need next year, you'll probably give them the same number you used last year. And so if you're not using a lot of opiates, then you continue to not use a lot of opiates, um, which means that your care providers aren't very well trained in using them because they haven't accessed them before. And that means that when they go and they teach the next generation of physicians and nurses about managing pain, they will also not know much about it. So I do think that there is this cycle of low use leading to low use. Um, there's the historical opiate trade where opium was used as kind of a tool of subjugation in a lot of countries that also has led to a lot of cultural um, stigma surrounding the use of opiates. Um, but I think it's safe to say that opiates are cheap, they're effective, they're relatively easy to use, um, and there are most certainly a lot of patients who could benefit from these drugs in appropriate settings in low- and middle-income countries. I mean, we've talked a lot about different challenges in cancer, but I know you've got some very cool things that you guys are doing with Global Oncology. Can you tell me a little bit about the approach that you're taking and maybe some things that you're very excited about? So our organization has taken the tact that it's going to take more than just doctors and nurses and ministers of health and big pharma to solve this problem in you know worldwide cancer. And one thing that we've been really inspired by is the desire of people from all different walks of life, lawyers, engineers, computer scientists, graphic designers, um, all coming to the table saying, hey, we want to, we want to make change. We want to make an impact in this field. And so a lot of the projects that we have at Global Oncology are focused on advocacy, raising awareness, and then trying to use various technologies and, and disciplines to creatively solve problems related to cancer outcomes. Um, so I can give you a couple of examples of projects we're really excited about right now. And one is called the Global Cancer Project Map. Um, so one of the big issues in emerging fields like global oncology or global cancer work is that a lot of people are trying to do good in different pockets of the world, but nobody knows what anybody else is doing. Um, so the problem ends up being it's very difficult to figure out who's doing what and where. Um, so if you wanted to go down to Guatemala, for example, and set up a cervical cancer screening program, it would probably be very difficult for you to find a similar program that had been started in Nicaragua or Colombia um, or Rwanda. The Global Cancer Project Map actually seeks to create this type of network. Um, what we've done is we've partnered with the National Cancer Institute Center for Global Health, and we've built this online resource that's free to use that collects information, detailed information about projects related to global cancer all over the world. We then make all of this information available freely on the web, um, and it allows you to very quickly figure out, you know, who's doing what and where. So if you were looking at cervical cancer screening programs, for example, you could type in cervical cancer, and it would show you all of the cervical cancer projects in the world. If you wanted to further limit by screening, you could add that as a keyword or add that to the research project type, and it would give you a list of everybody who's doing those types of projects. Sounds like an incredibly helpful tool, especially for those trying to get projects kickstarted and not reinvent the wheel. Have you noticed that a lot of people are starting to use the map? 
Um, so already we've actually been to meetings with not only researchers, but heads of pharmaceutical companies who, uh, not knowing that we were responsible for the map, have actually pulled up the map um, while we were meeting with them to, to show us what was going on. Um, so I think it's starting to get more and more uptake. Um, right now, the projects that we have represented on the map are just a subset of the, the total projects that we think are represented in the world. Um, we have about 1,500 projects on there right now. We anticipate that at completion will be at around 15,000 projects. That's fantastic. And I thought it was interesting what you said about global oncology solutions really need to come from a multidisciplinary approach. Are there any other examples that you have of projects that have you excited that you think really highlight this aspect of global oncology? Yeah, so there are a couple of other projects that we're also very focused on. Um, one of them actually addresses one of the issues that we spoke of uh, at another time in this interview, which is the issue of patient adherence to medication and chemotherapy. Um, one of the things that we were told was a problem by colleagues of ours in an oncology ward in Malawi, this is Dr. Leo Masamba and his colleagues, was that patients would come to get treatment for their cancer and they'd get one cycle of chemotherapy they'd end up having symptoms related to their chemotherapy because these drugs can often induce side effects, would conclude that the chemotherapy was making them worse and would actually never come back for the second cycle of chemotherapy. And you and I know that if there's anything worse than getting no chemotherapy, it's getting only one cycle of your chemotherapy where you typically get a lot of the side effects but you don't get any of the benefit. And so what we did in collaboration with a graphic design firm in Cambridge, Massachusetts called The Meme uh, was to build uh, a very, very low-tech kind of picture book. It's a culturally appropriate picture book that describes the side effects of chemotherapy. This sounds like a fantastic idea. And I am just imagining as you're telling me about this, about how useful this would be for providers even here at home uh, at Boston Medical Center, we have a very large immigrant population, and we're oftentimes trying to communicate these very complex treatment regimens to our patients, and we run into the same barriers that you're talking about internationally. Do you have plans to make these available for providers at other sites, both internationally and here at home? We do. So one of the things that we're doing right now is we're trying to scale up so that we have the document um, in a variety of languages. Um, we plan to make everything that we've developed available open source on our website sometime in the near future. So this is another goal of ours for 2016, which is to make these documents available widely um, so that individuals all over the world can use them. And one of the things that we'd really like to do, because we're trying to continually improve these, is to have providers such as you who might use this give us feedback on your experience so that we can continually improve these. At this time, Ami, I just want to thank you for joining us and ask if there's any advice that you'd like to provide for young doctors in training. I think for medical students in trainings and residents in training, fellows, um, I encourage people to not be bound by traditional boundaries and what we can and can't do in medicine. Um, if you've earned your medical degree or you've done your residency training, um, that really is a passport to you, a passport to to explore medicine broadly and find areas of it that interest you and places where you feel like you can make impact. And so if you find yourself passionate about something that isn't really run-of-the-mill, um, I encourage people to pursue those interests. When Franklin and I started Global Oncology, a lot of people, you know, looked at us and said, cancer's not a problem. 
in in poor settings. Why do you guys want to do this? Even if you do want to do it, um, you're not going to make any progress. It's just too hard of a problem. And while you know we're we're not delusional, we don't think that we're going to solve the cancer problem worldwide in our lifetimes. I think already with the help of our you know very dedicated volunteers, we're at least moving in the right direction, and we're making steps toward making cancer care more equitable. And so I encourage people to find what they're passionate about, and even if it isn't quite a field yet, um, to find mentors and colleagues that can help them cobble together ways to make impact. Thanks so much to Dr. Ami Pat for joining us today. She's the Assistant Professor of Medicine and Genetics at Stanford University and co-founder of the nonprofit Global Oncology. You can learn more about the work of Global Oncology at globalonc.org. That's all we have today for Radio Rounds. In the meantime, remember that you can download podcasts of all past episodes. Just search the iTunes store for Radio Rounds or visit radiorounds.org. You can also contact our team via email, like us on Facebook, and follow us on Twitter. All of that information at radiorounds.org. Production made possible in part by MedPlus Advantage. Sponsored by the American Medical Association. Visit us at medplusadvantage.com. AMA Insurance is pleased to introduce an individual disability insurance plan called Essentials for MedPlus Advantage Participants. Through this plan, eligible graduating medical students have a special one-time opportunity to apply for high-quality individual disability insurance with no intrusive or time-consuming medical exams and only a few basic questions, all with discounted premiums. Apply now as the enrollment period ends soon. Of course, please remember that the views and opinions expressed on Radio Rounds are not representative of the views and opinions of the partners of Radio Rounds. Thanks so much for joining us, everyone. It's great to be back with you, and we hope you have a fantastic week. For our entire staff here at Radio Rounds, I'm Eddie Breyercheck, and one day, I'll be your doctor. <laughs>